Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. I'm Chip Patterson. The NFL Draft is in the books, and boy, we're going back to ground zero where uh, Barton Simmons, your city, was just enveloped in NFL Draft fever. Our predictions that the Bachelorette NFL Draft clash uh, not it made local news. It made national <laughs> news. I mean, people were were on us early. They're like, "Man, I'll tell you what." The Cover Three podcast, Barton and Chip, they called this. Um, how are you doing after NFL Draft Mania is now in the rear view? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Cover Three podcastians uh, were in the know early that there was going to be a a brutal, violent cultural clash between bachelorette parties and NFL draft goers and sure enough, uh, made the national news and it was, you know, so I was, I was down there and we were kind of in midtown for the CBS coverage and I was hanging with Will Brinson and Brian McFadden and Pete Prisco and all the Jamie Eisenberg and, and the kind of the NFL draft or the NFL crew for CBS for a lot of the weekend uh, I was not down in the masses where there was reportedly like 600,000 people over the course of three days or down at the watching the NFL draft down in downtown Nashville. Um, but it was the, the energy looked pretty awesome. And, you know, for as much as I'm a, a, I'm a Nashville native, you know, I've been here, I've been here since the beginning when Nashville is just sort of a, a cute little town that the, the people that really know where a good party is could, could kind of show up at. Now it's sort of mainstream. I sure, you know, getting married and having kids right as Nashville started like kicking into NFL draft central and, uh, and, and right as the, you know, the town really blew up from a, from a national perspective. I'm, feel like I'm missing the nightlife in some real perfect storms that are brewed. So I'm a little disappointed I didn't get to get in the mix for that, but it was still a pretty awesome event. What was uh what was it like at the the saloon? Did y'all have we had there was a band on Thursday night that was making up songs on the spot. How did that go? Yeah, there was only a live there's a live studio audience on night 1. Uh the band was pretty impressive. Uh I should I should I should have those name the name for these guys to promote them because they they did some good work coming up with with songs on the spot uh, and yeah I mean I think the coverage was 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 pretty pretty robust on the CBS side of things it was fun it was fun to kind of because we're in our college football world it's fun to get up there and work with the NFL guys from time to time uh, it was always uh, you know I'm always a little bit you know w- when I get asked to to break down a pick. And I got no idea what the what the team needs for the Eagles are, or how this cornerback fits into the scheme for the Lions or whatever. That's that's a little bit tricky ground for me. But uh, it was fun to just see the names, you know, come off the board all weekend of and all these guys that I'm pretty familiar with. So it was, it was fun to break them down. Oh man! So they were coming to you, and did they ask you, "Does this fit a need?" Or were no, they at least they set, they, I, they, I, they did a good job of setting you up? I made sure to prep them that yeah. I just, that's not my wheelhouse. Yeah, uh, you know, a couple times I had to, to 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 sort of delve into those sort of conversations a little bit, but nothing too bad. I mean, it's always interesting too. Uh, it's shocking some of the names that don't go. Well, if you just watch a lot of college football. Right. I mean, Mitch Hyatt didn't get drafted, who's a four-year starter at left tackle for Clemson, two-time national champion, multi-year All-American. I mean, we've, we have gotten the sense all sort of year from the O-line gurus that Clemson's O-line is not all that and Mitch Hyatt has flaws. But 
that he's not like a six round pick or something is kind of wild. Not drafted at all. That makes yeah. zero how about, sense. How about Chase Hansen at Utah? I mean, every time I watched a Utah game, that he had twenty two tackles for loss in the Pac twelve. And whatever his flaws are, I guess he's kind of undersized or um, runs himself out of plays from time to time and maybe overly aggressive. I don't know, but he's that that guy's not worth a fifth or sixth round pick. That's there must be something glaring on that film when you actually dig into it beyond the TV copy. Who are some of the players that uh, that really surprised you with how they fell? Um. I mean, another one that was surprising that he fell all the way out was Emmanuel Hall from Missouri, who is a 20 yards per catch guy for a career and 4-3-9-40 with a 11-9 broad jump. And, and I mean, look, DK Metcalf is – DK Metcalf goes in the second round. I don't know, I don't know what's – you know, why Emmanuel Hall is – is significantly less valuable. I mean, they both are, are vertical guys. Um, so, you know, that was that was really interesting to me. Um, How about Tyree Jackson? Not drafted. Yeah, yeah. Um, another guy that left early too. You know, and what? I mean, he, he's. He, I mean, he's not good enough to just. You know, get on the roster from a developmental standpoint. I mean, hey, you take him as a tight end. I mean, as athletic and big as he is. Uh, so there's, I mean, from a college football fan's perspective, it's so interesting to see who's valued and who's not. And things like the running back position, where you just see all these guys pop off the board, and and you see these 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 other names that are, we're more familiar with that have. I mean, Travion Williams was drafted in the same range as like the second back for FAU. Literally, like the second running back for FAU was drafted, I think, four picks behind Travion Williams. Whoever was behind Devin Singletary, because I don't know the name of the second back for FAU. Yeah, I can't even remember his name. It's like uh, Kenneth or Kareth White or something like that. Um, So, you know, just a sort of eye opening that. uh, you know what what the what the NFL teams are looking for and and how they'll fall in love or fall out of love with the guys that that we you know are pretty familiar with in the ACC. Um, you know, like I, I always talk about the you know the Boston College Pro Factory, and uh, you know we we did hear uh, a couple of Eagles get their names called, but no Lucas Dennis, no Hamp Cheevers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like I and I. I thought that they continued to play up to, you know, like their their effort on the field led me to believe that they were pros ready to go. I mean, if you want to, and then at Duke, Joe Giles Harris, that's another guy. Like if like maybe not um, elite in a in a way from a size perspective or a measurables perspective, but man, that guy can that guy knows football. I just uh, I was I was very I was sort of surprised that that you got to see some of these very, very productive players not get picked up in the draft, which of course, you know, as we all, all know, by the time you get down to rounds five, six or seven, that might be a, that might be a game of like speed dating or networking, right? Where you would rather be an undrafted free agent at a good fit necessarily than drafted to somewhere where your position is, uh, is all backed up. Is also, I mean, Clemson and Alabama predictably, you know, kind of ruled the day. Um, but one thing that that struck me, and we didn't really we haven't really talked about it a lot since then. But you know, Clemson had their three first round defensive line draft picks. Well, people forget too, and this is just just kind of mind blowing to think about. But Rashawn Gary was this close. To, to committing to Clemson, like walked up to the podium and Clemson thought they were getting him and Michigan wasn't sure if they were getting him. And, and a lot of people think that's where he wanted to go, but his mom sort of ended up pushing him towards Michigan. And can you imagine? I mean, just, I mean, couldn't be any closer to adding that guy to their defensive line too. all four of them go in the first round. And, um, I mean, it was just, uh, 
it, it, it's it's pr- pretty wild what they had on that defense. Um, we're gonna talk with uh, Dennis Dodd about many things here in just a second, but among them, sort of where where the Pac-12 is standing right now, and I think that that's gonna be one of the themes and the storylines for this season, probably in, in football and basketball too. The Pac-12 comes in third among conferences. SEC blazing it away with it, a record 64 picks. Big 10 at 40, Pac-12 33, ACC 28, Big 12 at 26. For the Pac-12, which has uh, less schools than the Big 10, ACC, and SEC, you've got a, you know, a, a pretty solid number right there. Is there do you do you think that the the quality of players in the Pac-12 have continued to be strong? It's just being able to turn that into consistent play and production on the field. Like where where in the continuing in this chapter of the continuing what where does the Pac-12 stand narrative? In, in this chapter of that book, you know, what does this NFL draft tell you? Well, I mean, one of the one of the factors involved there is the fact that USC is still they're still producing draft picks. Um, what Cameron Smith got picked, Marvell Tell got picked, Chumali Doga got picked. Um, My boy Porter Gustin did not. Very Porter sad. Gustin did not. Fresh off a failed PED test. Uh, but I mean, so USC still got talent, and we knew they had talent, but. If USC is not good, the Pac-12 is not good. Um, Washington had another pretty strong year. So I mean, so th- I think the still there the, in some ways like the the middle class is growing in the in the Pac-12 or the the middle tier teams are are sort of rising while the top tier teams and really that's primarily USC and UCLA are are sort of dipping and it I mean that conference and it's the same case you know everyone was talking about how bad the Big 12 was when Texas uh, was down and as soon as Texas starts getting back up again the conference feels strong again and so I still think as soon as if if Oregon keeps on playing good ball and Washington keeps on playing good ball and Utah be Utah. All we're missing is just UCLA, UCLA and USC being national powers again. And so they still have talent. Um, and so I think the, the conference is very dependent, as every conference is on their blue bloods. The conference is dependent on USC being USC. And if they're not, the conference is going to be down. If they are, it's going to feel like the conference is uh, is good. And and uh, so we're just we're just waiting on USC. We will talk USC, Reggie Bush, Urban Meyer, Trevor Lawrence, Clemson, Ohio State, Ryan Day, and much, much more with Dennis Dodd right after this. Welcome to the Nothing Personal with David Sampson podcast. Do me a favor and blink, please. Did you blink? That's how fast the Major League Baseball season went in 2020. The postseason is already upon us. Whether it's baseball news, you want NFL, college football, water polo chess movies if there's a story we'll have it covered every weekday five days a week just subscribe and download on apple spotify stitcher youtube or wherever else you find your podcasts no bs no soft tosses no hot takes you know it's always business it's nothing personal Majors down and one to go in 2020. Bryson DeChambeau overpowered his peers at the U.S. Open. Can he carry that into November for a fall edition of the Masters? We're chatting about that and more on the First Cut Golf Podcast, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. We're in your feed week in and week out with tournament previews, picks, interviews, news, and analysis. Join Mark Himmelman, Kyle Porter, Greg Ducharme, and myself, Rick Gaiman, as we give you daily fantasy plays, winning bets, and the hottest takes about Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. So what are you waiting for? Come join our group and let's talk golf. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or anywhere else podcasts are found.
the magic bullet they now have in their holster, which they will apply. Nick Saban and Jim Harbaugh make a combined $20 million this season. Those two guys alone will make $13 million more than the entire Mac. And now it's our pleasure to welcome back to the Cover 3 podcast, Dennis Dodd, the Dodd father. Dennis, you are out in Phoenix right now. We've got um, more than 70 schools coming through. Coaches coming through. We, we've we've got uh, different conferences coming through. It is the Fiesta Summit. Uh, lots of lots of action items. Lots of conversations. How's the hotel lobby life treating you? The uh, the lobby lounging is great. It's uh, shooting shooting fish in a barrel, sort of, with uh, coaches coming through. They have to pass our gauntlet, the media table, before they check in. So it's uh, no, it's re- it's really laid back. It's nice to see these guys and and it's a great time to get them because they are laid back. They're with their wives or playing golf. They are getting job uh, work done. It's not like the old Fiesta frolic where it was that you read about in days gone by the Bacchanal and, and, uh, and, uh, play, you know, there is a lot of golf being played, but they are here actually getting uh, work done. So you're saying John Junker uh, is missed by some John. Yeah. John, John yes. John Junker <laughs> is not here and is, is missed fondly by those of us who remember, but it's not like it was before. Okay, so um, I wanted to start with a sort of a, a topic of the the week, I guess that that bubbled up. And Barton, you caught a little bit of this yesterday, right? What the US? Where are you going? Sorry, the <laughs> USC Reggie Bush um, in, in a story in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, you know, one of those like long insider column uh, that has sort of bit by bit. Here's here's a little bit from here. Here's a little bit from there. Reggie Bush, the way that I read it, almost in jest saying, you know, no, first of all, we will be recruiting Urban Meyer uh, to be the next head coach at USC. Urban Meyer will be sitting at a Fox desk, a, a their own version of college game day. Matt Liner will be there. Friend of the podcast, Brady Quinn, I believe is going to be involved as well. But Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, members of the national championship team, both Heisman Trophy winners, you know, they they have sort of set up this very, I, I read it as a, you know, jovial, like we're going to be trying to get Urban to go to USC, we're going to be in Los Angeles. But then Reggie Bush also said, uh, and I thought these words were more poignant, it's put up or shut up time and that Clay Helton needs to win the division uh, in order to be able for to to be safe moving forward, now Reggie Bush is is not allowed to be around the program because of NCAA sanctions. So I, you know, the I guess I'll throw to to you first, Barton. Like, do you read anything into this into it being significant for the future of Clay Helton? Well, I, I don't know that Lynn Swan's listening to those guys, but I think it it properly reflects the the attitude of the fan base and sort of the college football population in general um and hey reggie reggie bush is the right person to say it because there's no no awkward moments coming up with him standing on the sidelines next to clay helton right. uh with him not allowed back on campus but i think it's it's a it's a fair point and i honestly think everybody in the country that saw that lineup of urban meyer Brady Quinn, Matt Leinert, and Reggie Bush on the the Fox game day equivalent, uh, I think they're all thinking the same thing is, well, this is just all too convenient. Arrows pointing towards Urban Meyer to USC. And people were saying Urban Meyer to USC as soon as he retired at Ohio State. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, 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 I think this is all – the beginning, uh, the the kindling here of this sort of fire that's going to start to to get oxygen day by day. Boy, that's a that's a great take. I hadn't even really thought about it that way. Um, I was th- this this matters on so many levels because because of that second quote in the story. It's not it's not all ha ha ha. We're just jo- joking around. He has to win the division. Wait, what? Or or else this is it. I I do think that reflects ship the feeling of a lot of USC fans, but it is a little bit, I, I guess, irresponsible by, by Reggie, who is, by the way, permanently disassociated from being on the USC campus. And there, there are sensitive talks going on now, whether he can get back as a Fox analyst or game day guy on campus at, at USC if he's, if he has to. Uh, so in that sense, it's, you know, it, it's not, the, the tact is not very good, but 
I spent a lot, I wrote about it for this week and I spent a lot of the day on uh, Tuesday um, tracking down Clay Helton, Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart because the way, the way this note was, it was a note presented six days ago in a column in the LA Times and people just kind of got, got noticed of it this week in, in the way their author wrote it, Arash Markazi, it wasn't that they were sitting around just joking. It was like, by the way, Reggie Bush says this, and Matt Leiner, him and I are going to are going to try to push Clay Halton out and get, um, you know, uh, Urban Meyer in there. So I, what I wrote was from the viewpoint that, you know, this this is a flashpoint for Pac-12 football. Yeah, everybody thinks this could happen, uh, and maybe it will happen, but. This is what the Pac-12 is. USC is probably the only school, uh, maybe Oregon, that would take a dip into these waters uh, if, if Urban Meyer was available in any other conference and he was willing, he'd be snatched up. But because of the mindset of the Pac-12, they're not going to, not every school is going to pay $8 million for it. And I think that's what it would take to get him back. I mean, he he's the second or third best coach in, in college football. But, but. If you look, if you look deeper into it, I don't see how USC can hire him, just from the fact that how he left Ohio State and the fact that in October USC just paid uh, two hundred and fifteen million dollars to to two hundred plaintiffs who said they'd been abused by a campus gynecologist for over a period of thirty years, and we know what the allegations are against Zach Smith and and Urban Meyer. So, as much as people want to make this happen, I, I don't, I don't think it can happen. I think that you can isolate. It was especially, do you think Clay Helton right now, I mean, if Urban Meyer was not in Los Angeles, if Urban Meyer, excuse me, only one day a week or at least one day a week, um, you know, if Urban Meyer was not part of this Fox team, you know, even Matt Leinart's been a part of the Fox team. He's been, he's a, he's a mainstay there at this point. Reggie Bush obviously was the one who, who threw the, the aerosol can into the middle of the campfire on this. But I do think that <laughs> even without Reggie Bush's comments, we had to look at Clay Helton yes. and this USC program having JT Daniels, uh, you know, the Cliff Kingsbury hire, then all of a sudden Cardinals come and get him. But you've got Graham Harrell, who you, you know from uh, North Texas, who's got uh, a lot of good potential and a high ceiling as well. I look at the rest of that division, Dennis, and I think that it is fair to say that even if Urban Meyer's not in the picture, if Urban Meyer's still at Ohio State, that USC should win the division and if they don't, then making a move on Clay Helton is totally fair. Yeah. Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that. And he and he knows it. He's. Um, I just get put off because he's such a decent man. But look, there's 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 no room for sentiment in this in this at all. Um, yeah, I think people projected on this for a long, long time that Clay Helton faces a do or die, and they don't want to hear that. Um, you know, he he won a Rose Bowl and a Pac-12 title his first two years as a head coach, or, or really kind of bailed out the program, frankly, after the after the Steve Sarkeesian mess in 2015, and has been there, believe it or not, 10 years. He's literally been there uh, since the last time USC was relevant. Lane Kiffin hired him as a quarterbacks coach in 2010. But I would disagree with you on, on the division thing. I, I think Utah wins that division, and I, I think they're the best team in that division this year. I had, In fact, I had them ranked 12th in my uh, power rankings, whatever that means. But and again, if he doesn't, yes, he's it's it's going to be hell to pay, I think. But neither here nor there. Uh, you mentioned Graham Harrell, and before that, Cliff Kingsbury. I think that in itself is an odd fit because there has to be in Barton. You know this. There has to be some legacy to student body right, no matter what you do there. Student body left. They they are going whole hog. It seems to me with with the air raid, taking a little bit of physicality out of uh, out of USC's legacy. Yeah, but you know, I, I mean, we've talked about that a little bit on this podcast with Chip, and and you know, Michigan's sort of making the same move to a lesser yeah. degree. Um, and this is, I, I, you know, to me, with Clay Helton this year, it's really about whatever it takes to win. Um, you know, and and I, I do think sure. that Graham Harrell, particularly given the roster. You know, who they got a quarterback, what they have a receiver. I mean, that that's I mean, all the pieces are there for that offense to be really good. But I, I mean, what, this is going to be a, 
something we'll discuss next week because we're at CBS. We're releasing our coaching rankings. Um, and the way I did my coaching rankings is basically what I, you know, if I've got a program, would I take the guy ranked above this, you know, to take Clay Helton, for example, um, who, who would I want running my program, um, over Clay Helton or, or less than Clay Helton. And, and that's how I kind of set my, my rankings up. I got Clay Helton 60 out of 65th. And I agree with you, uh, Dennis, that, that Clay Helton is, is a unanimously considered like a decent human being. And, and you, I've never in my life heard anyone say a negative word about him as a person. And that's, that's all commendable. But I, I think it's just inexcusable how that program has been as as stuck in the mud from a developmental standpoint as they've been under him. And this truly is. And I and I you know I just look at all the all the fifty nine names above him. And if I'm running a program, I would feel more confident with them as my head coach than him. And you're USC. Yeah, that's fair. That, that's uh, fair. Yeah, you know, so I, just, I think this is a this is going to be a fascinating year for USC. Well, let me throw this in real quick. I, whatever happens, I I don't think Lynn Swan's going to be around to make the hire because I think he gets he gets swept out of the athletic department in, in short order, be, just because of this academic admission scandal. Which, according to reports, there were two players on the football team that <laughs> that were walk ons, a long snapper and a, and a field goal, or at least tried to get on the team. We can just uh, say that they played during the five and seven season and blame it on that. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, blame that on them. But he's he's it's lar- his his stand his status at USC is largely based on celebrity, which is kind of sad. USC's done this; it's kind of a pattern hiring former players. Yeah. And I start I started looking at his background again last night, and it's like was a guest host on To Tell the Truth and had his own show and ran for governor. And it's like, I don't see any any sports administration background. Um, you know, I, I just think a lot – the biggest thing now is, what was it, the beginning of April, he's on in the middle of this scandal on the East Coast signing autographs. It's like, really? Yeah. That you know, I, thought, I think that's the last straw for a lot of people. And, and I did talk – the guy that a lot of people – said should have got the job. In fact, a long time ago, senior associate Steve Lopes, I talked to him yesterday. He's here. And, and not about this, but just about stuff. And I, I told him, I said, Steve, a lot of people think, you know, you should have the job. And he just kind of said, well, thank you very much. But uh, And if they're smart, they, they will update him. But that's another story. You mentioned your uh, post-spring top 25 posted to CBSSports.com on Monday. You can go find it on CBSSports.com or on the CBS Sports app. You did mention Utah, which you do have at number twelve. Going to be, um, I, I, I don't. We can. We'll have plenty of time to talk preview what yeah. a team is going to look like. We're not going to go into Utah. I'm more curious about uh, your team at the top, the Clemson Tigers, because you also got to spend some time there. As as we take a look at Trevor Lawrence, yet another uh, of not and in, in like every little bit, and you know, generationally great quarterback. Uh, could be ready. Looks like he could be ready for the NFL right now. I don't know if human beings necessarily are ready for the NFL right now. What do you get from talking to Trevor in terms of you know where he's at from the whirlwind that was yeah. you know starting as a backup to Kelly Bryant to just taking the nation by storm uh, in that win against Alabama? Uh, what were your feelings about the rising sophomore quarterback? Well, you, you used a good word there. It is. Excuse me. It is a little bit of a whirlwind for him. I, what I took from him is just the genuine nature of a 19-year-old kid who who isn't may not you know may not be all the way self-aware of what's what's happening to him right now. Uh, he's still he's part of him is still a kid. He loves being on campus. He has angst about living alone for the first time. How he's going to pay bills, and you're looking at you know to see him in front of you, a 6'5", 6'6", 220-pound sculpted product, who I don't know is maybe still growing into his body. I don't know. Man, the kid, the kid looks NFL ready right now. And that was that was really kind of the intent of the story, to get his reaction to that. I mean, I, I, I came away from that championship game, you know, boy, this kid, and a lot of us did, this kid could play right now. And then I started thinking, what other true freshman quarterback could you have said that about? And there aren't many. I mean, not not Marino, not Elway. Elway threw 96 passes as a freshman. 
Um, there's a bunch of guys who were redshirt freshmen, uh, Jameis among them, uh, that don't count. And uh, the, the comps I came away with really are 2009 Matt Barkley and 2015 Josh Rosen. But even the great freshman seasons they had, nobody sat there and went, they could play in the league right now. And I threw it out there to, to Trevor Lawrence, this, you know, Mel Kuyper. Mel Kuyper going over the top, believe it or not saying he'd be the clear-cut number one pick right now if he came out. And he basic Trevor Lawrence basically said, who's Mel Kiber? <laughs> he said, is he the guy that does all those mock drafts? And I said, yeah, <laughs> Trevor, he is. So he's so blissfully unaware of what's going on around him. He can still walk around town. Uh, he still, people leave him alone in class. He said his classes aren't very big. Uh, he, he came back the day after the championship came, went to a business statistics class, and just blended in and started, started going to school again. And I don't think a part of him obviously doesn't want to give that up again. It would give that up. It was really refreshing to see him like that. So just from, I think it's fascinating to see how he handles this. And and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading um, what you write about it because he's, I mean, he is becoming this, I mean, he's going to be one of the big, but most iconic figures in college football history before this is all said and done, potentially. I mean, he's got this long flowing hair. He's a true freshman national champion. He's got, we got two more years with him. And there's no sign that Clemson is slowing down in terms of being on the national stage for those two, two more years. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not inconceivable to think that he wins two more national championships uh, at quarterback. And yet, he is such an understated kid from a personality standpoint. And I remember him just from, from high school, you know, I, like Jake Fromm was a kid who just owned a room, not in any sort of uh, flamboyant, like mm-hmm. uh, boastful, you know, colorful way, just, just had a presence. You just felt as soon as he walked in the room, total leadership to him. Tua even was this sort of unique like personality laid back, but very in this island style vibe that was was so cool and calm. And and so many of these guys, I mean, Josh Rosen had this really unique um, personality. Um, there's the the Johnny Manzels and sort of guys like that. But but Trevor was always this very. It was almost like you said, Dennis. Like he didn't even. He was indifferent and like yes. aloof almost, and not not in, in in this in this very unburdened way, where, oh, I'm the number one player in the country. Oh, that's that's that sounds cool. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go and and he would, and he never, he just was always steady as she goes, just very like very even handed, and and it feels like through one season, that he's unwavered even in that in that persona. Is this just and and whatever you I, th- I think when he's answered questions and in the media you know whatever your religious beliefs are um mm-hmm. it's it's been it's you know his his sort of grounding in in christianity and christ appears to be this this i think really stabilizing force for him that it's, it's kind of neat to see him sort of own it so publicly but i i'm just been very impressed with sort of the the way he's weathered this storm and I'll be curious if you can hang on to it for, for the next couple of years. Yeah, that, that's, that's really valid. The, the Christianity part. And I, I didn't delve too much into that, but he, I said, and he started talking about it. Where do you go to church? You know, wondering if he goes to a big congregation or something, he's going to be swarmed. And he, he goes to a church about 20 or 25 minutes outside of Clemson near Anderson, South Carolina. And it's, it's, I think it was New Spring or the name of it, I think. I, I had an idea to drive out there to talk to the pastor or the minister or whoever, but I didn't. Um, but, I, but I said, how, you know, how are you accepted? And he said, I, you know, I just roll in there and, and do my thing, and they leave me alone too. So I think from that aspect, he, he's in the perfect spot. You're right. You know, he's, there, there is something. Tua has that it. You know, when he walks in the room, there's charisma. Jake Fromm, too, he, he's really grown into the role. But in, in the times I've seen Trevor Lawrence, he's been, you know, been in press conferences and very fixed situations. He, he's almost got, got that deer in the headlights look. And he speaks in platitudes and cliches. He was a little bit more relaxed, on, you know, on campus. He, that day, 
they'd been turned loose. Uh, Clemson players were off for a month. You know, he still had school, had to finish up, but then he was going to go on vacation with his family. Yeah. So he was looking forward to that. So it, it, it was really cool. It was it was nice to do. It'll be an interesting. It'll be interesting this particular season because even as it was clear that he had taken over the starting job, Kelly Bryant transfers away. Uh, he starts to really thrive near the end of the season. You know that Clemson team was led by its veterans. It was led by the yeah. you know almost like fifty or plus juniors or seniors, third or fourth year players who were uh, you know carrying the microphone helping to to sort of guide the way. And Trevor talked a lot last year about how important it was to have that leadership there. And and now that's kind of got to be him, right? Yeah, it yeah. definitely does. I, I remember, I keep coming back to this. I was at the, the A&M game last year. And they don't win that game without Kelly Bryant's leadership and, and poise down the stretch. They were, they were splitting time, as you remember. That was game two. But when it became winning time, Kelly Bryant, with a steady hand, not spectacular, played the last six series, and they won by two points. That was a one close game they had. And then what was it? Two weeks later, he's not starting. But Kelly Bryant, uh, I'm sorry, Trevor, within that game, stepped onto the field his first snap through a 67-yard touchdown pass. Um, and that showed, okay, that to me, well, this is going to happen sooner than later. It's just a matter of how awkward it looks for everybody. And, and there was some awkward, awkwardness to it because Kelly Bryant transferred and, and that became that. But you, you saw it right away that he was going to be the next big one. In your uh, shooting fish in a barrel in the hotel lobby, it sounds like you did get a chance to catch up with Ohio State coach Ryan Day. Um, at this point in the process, we've got the first spring done. Justin Fields is in. He's eligible. He had an okay spring game, yeah. but I think that um, there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of questions that that I can tell in terms of what people are expecting from who's going to be QB one for the Buckeyes. What what were some of the things that you were able to glean from conversations with Ryan Day? Yeah, uh, just you know, just trying to get a read on him. I'd never met him. Uh, had covered the team while he was the head coach last year, but uh, but that's something I wanted to talk about. That was the T- the TCU game, which is the last really big good game TCU played. They had injuries after that at uh, Jerry World. Um, I, I I put this to him. I said I got this feeling. In the post game, that there was a sense of calm that had settled over Ohio State after that game. The, stu- the players talked about it, uh, the way he guided the team. Because you remember, that was the last of Urban's three game suspension. And they were, boy, where are they going to go from here? Urban's coming back, sort of a lightning rod. Good coach, but how's this going to go? And he, he kind of agreed that, you know, they had bought in. Um, he felt comfortable. I did ask him, and you guys remember this, when he was elevated, there were a few guys on that staff with more seniority that could have taken the job, you know, maybe a Greg Schiano. Um, And I said, why do you think you got elevated? You know, 38, whatever, 38, 39 years old. And he, you know, he kind of went, well, you know, lucky to get the job. But I thought that was significant. They knew even then um, in his Barton helped me out his second year, I think at Ohio state that, that he had that it, and but his first year as offensive coordinator, he was only first, quarterbacks coach the year before. Right. His first year as offensive coordinator. So, uh, you know, came away with a feeling that that Ohio State's in good hands. You know, it, it's, as I s- said many times, Ohio State football is almost bigger than whoever's coaching it. You know, they always seem to make the right decision that keeps going on. It doesn't falter. I mean, it did, you know, for one year when uh, – with the Trestle thing and, and Luke Fickle had the team at the NCA sanctions, but they got right back up on the horse with, with Urban Meyer. And I, I think Ohio state will keep winning at a high level with Ryan day. But this day thing is, is so fascinating how he's become this superstar coach. And I, I you know, you certainly want to take nothing away from what they accomplished on offense this year. And that, that plays into his, um, his, his aura or his, his reputation, but it's it's just, I mean, do you get a sense on like how this, how you know how he got here? Because ultimately, he yeah. you know he's not even been in college football that long. He doesn't have this long Lincoln Riley track record of of putting up explosive offenses, no matter where he is. He's he's basically got two years of of big time college football, and even even outside of the 
you know, outside of Columbus, Brian Day is is this superstar young head coach, and uh, I'm just I'm just curious on whether or not yeah. we've got a reason to believe in this, or whether we've just all sort of convinced each other. It's like this echo changer where everyone's like, "Yeah, oh yeah, Ryan Day's the next big thing." Ryan Day. Yeah, no, that's thing. a great, that's a great point. Um, that's a great point. He, I did I did talk to Chip Kelly as I said about him, and Chip Chip is totally in the bag for him. Loves the guy. He he did have you know experience in the NFL with the Eagles and 49ers. He was Chip's quarterbacks coach. And, and for better or worse, but Chip just, you know, with what Chip did there, but Chip just raves about him um, as a play caller, as a guy that gets along with the quarterbacks. He was a quarterback at New Hampshire. Chip called him the point guard type, uh, not not demonstrative, but low-key, always a leader. Uh, and they, I think they even coached together one year at New Hampshire. And one of those under, I don't want to say under-the-radar guys, but not a self-promoter, but just runs the team. And, and, and if, yeah. if there's one thing that Ohio state probably needs like that now, it's, it's him. Um, you know, you don't, you don't see them getting, you know, the, the program run into the ground like Trestle did with, with a still spectacular, you know, ruined his career, ruined uh, Ohio state football for a while. You don't see them getting NCAA uh, violations under him. I, I think they keep the offensive thing going, uh, I think a lot of the, the destruction of Michigan, an epic destruction of Michigan goes to him. And and let's not forget, you know, speaking of his quarterback whisperer abilities, the Dwayne Haskins, a lot of that has to go to him. 50 touchdowns, so basically a one and done top 15 pick in the NFL. That that That's on him. A lot of that's on him. So uh, they, had to, they had to go out and get, obviously, a free agent quarterback. And I suspect Justin Fields do many of the same things. Did you have any Justin Fields – discussion with him I'm, I, I, that's that's the next big test is can he turn yeah. Justin Fields into what we think he is yeah no not not in depth just basically that he did say you know we didn't have anyone on the roster that was like Dwayne Haskins so we had to go out and get somebody and then obviously you know rely on the whims of the NCAA for him to get eligible right away it looked like he had a good case but no, nothing's for sure but no um you know I, I already wrote about Tate Martell that uh Tate was basically told he wasn't in the plans for Ohio State, nothing nothing mean or like that, but was told early on that when, when Ryan Day took over, you're not in our plans. You can stay, but you know, we don't think you're gonna be the guy to lead this team. And then then obviously he transferred, but just just looks like a guy who's got it all together. Um, and I guess we'll have to wait and see how they play for that to be true. How does the shadow of Urban Meyer, man, we are starting and ending this podcast with a conversation about a coach who's not active. Goodness gracious. How does the shadow of Urban Meyer <laughs> continue to linger at Ohio State? Do you think that that, like, because it can go poorly, um, Florida State, it can go somewhat well, Virginia Tech, and there, there's all kinds of other examples. We're going to see about Bill Snyder at Kansas State, but it, specifically at Ohio State, you know, as Urban Meyer wants to remain, he and his wife want to remain a part of the, the Ohio State community. His friendship with Gene Smith, the athletic director, you know, a big part of the conversation when Urban Meyer announced that he was stepping down. You know, how is is that going to be something that plays a factor either for positive or negative for Ryan Day's first season as a full-time head coach of the Buckeyes? Yeah, great, great point and something I'm going to approach Gene Smith about while I'm here. There is that, okay, you know, that old um, saw, never be the guy to follow the guy. Right. You know, we've, we've seen it many times. Uh, Spurrier at Florida, Ronza, um, a, a lot of times. Bill Snyder, Chris Kleiman, we'll see. Yeah, the, uh, I, I want to see how that goes. You know, you, you're ta- again, we're talking about one of the two or three best coaches in college football who won at a high, high level, um, who had he stayed on track and, and still might be on track, could catch at his age, could still catch um, Nick Saban. Um, you know, he's he's got many, many years on Nick Saban. If he gets back into coaching, could still catch him in national championships. And so how does that work? I think they're, you know, from – 35,000 feet, there's a little bit of relief that it was turned over in such a smooth fashion. And again, there is so much belief in Ryan Day. You know, they're not, they're, frankly, they're not picking a Ron Sook. I mean, I, I don't think they are. I think they keep winning. He, he knows how to recruit. You know, they had a good recruiting year. 
But yeah, you're right about that. You know, whoever whoever follows Nick Saban, whoever follows, you know, years from now, Dabo Sweeney, that's going to be almost an impossible job. The issue at Ohio State, I think, again, is it just seems to work itself out there for some reason. You know, the, the football is bigger than whoever coaches it. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, what else you got, Dennis? Are we, um, what do you got the, there's some, some, do we want to talk rule changes? There's, uh, yeah, I had, you know, I had the experience, um, as a guest official at the Georgia spring game. Um, and actually that had to do with a lot of rule changes. We had, a, had meetings before and after the game and, you know, the, the targeting thing again is, is going to be an issue. But, in fact, Steve Shaw, the supervisor of officials for the SEC, stressed that at the end of it, we got to take the head shots out of the game. I, I don't know if that can happen fully. You know, we have that change in the rules this year. If you get multiple targeting penalties, you're suspended for a game. But that almost dovetails into this. I have this vague idea about football under attack where nationally football is just is just less popular, at least in some some places there here in Arizona, seven high powered JUCO programs shuttered their programs last year because they couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford the insurance. Um, participation in California high schools is down actually significantly. Uh, but, but, co- but coaches, college coaches are worried about, you know, uh, the propaganda. I'll use that word. Uh, about headshots, what do we know about it for sure? I, I think we know it's bad. Repetitive shots to the head are proven to be bad for football. But there's a faction out there, and I'm not saying the coaches. There's a faction out there who want, who want to say otherwise that the, the science is not correct, and it's it's I, I call it football under attack, and it's like two warring factions for the soul of football, not just college football, but all of football. So you were. I've just opened the door to another podcast. <laughs> well, hold on. So you were a guest official at the Georgia Spring Game. I missed this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On April twentieth. Yeah, we, it, uh, they it, they invite the SEC invites some media members every year, and it's you know it's supposed to be you know quid pro quo. We get a story about it. They get positive PR for, for the league, but it was a fascinating uh, experience. I, we get to shadow our position. I was a side judge, so. I shadowed Rob Skelton, who's been a, a side judge in the SEC for years. Dad played quarterback under Bear at Alabama. And just, just you know, I, I got a new respect for what those guys go through. And for what they get paid, I had, I had one official tell me that this is in the SEC, mind you now. After a full season, he nets $8,000. Now, it's not so much the pay and they get uh, the top – officials in uh, in the SEC and tier one get $2,225 a game plus per diem. Well, they, a lot of times they don't have their expenses covered in the SEC because, because think about this, you know, four, four weeks from the iron bowl, you're told you're doing the iron bowl. Okay, great. All the flights are gone. Um, you know, uh, the hotels might be gone, although the SEC probably reserves them hotels. But you have to pay for your travel and your hotel out of the money you get. So you're not you're not making that much money all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, a lot of it, and this came through talking to these guys, it's just for the jazz of it, for the juice, for the prestige of, of officiating in the SEC. I don't know. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if I'd put my reputation out there for $8,000 a year, given what we know can happen social media wise and, and everything else for one bad call. You know, I, 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 I felt sorry for those guys. I, 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 I'll be honest. I don't know why anyone would want to be a ref. <laughs> right? I, wanna, I got a buddy who I played, uh, like, basketball with growing up and against growing up who is who is currently an SEC basketball ref. And I've watched him sort of go through the process of going, like, rising in the ref ranks to get to where he is now. And it takes a lot of hard work to get there. And I don't know what the payoff is. You, just, I mean, I guess you're around the game, and but all you know, no one, you don't get any pats on the back if you call it a good game. All you do is catch hell if you, you know, if you miss one or if you make a controversial call. I mean, I, I would be, I'd be curious about just having a ref interview. Just what, what are the internal motivations to, to, to take in that gig? But it certainly doesn't sound like it's financial. 
No, at one point I turned to Rob Skelton on the field and I said, you really get, you really get a, a boost out of being in control of these games, don't you? And he goes, yeah, we do. You know, <laughs> that, you know, the game can't go on without these guys. And, and it's not from an arrogant point of view. It's just that, yeah, here, you know, we, we are important. The officials are important. And I, you do get a, a sense for the speed of the game, the side judge. I didn't have many crucial calls, but there was a pass interference at the goal line that I missed. Um, and Sean, and, and no, and Sean McDonough, and I missed it. I, 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 I didn't even see a reason to pull my flag. But Sean McDonough, the, the ESPN broadcaster, was the back judge, and he picked me up and he saw it. You know, it's like, that's why he's there. That's why he has that area. And he threw the flag right away. And it was, we had, we did, <clears throat> excuse me, we did three quarters and then we went upstairs to do like a debriefing with their replay coordinator, Larry Rose, who's a really good guy. And he had a legal pad full of mistakes that we'd made in just, you know, three quarters or things we missed. Um, we, somebody flat out missed uh, uh, intentional grounding. Um, you know, there was one where I think it was Dusty Dvorak, uh, is a broadcaster for ESPN, and he played defensive line in Oklahoma. He t- he told the defensive lineman, "I'm calling holding on the next play. You played a good game." <laughs> and, he called, and the guy caught it. He goes, "What are you doing?" You know, he just threw a flag on the center, phantom holding. But it was but it was fun. It was uh, it, it you know they dealt with us in a professional way, as if hey, this is on you guys. You got to step up. I gotta yeah. I gotta be honest. As much as uh, I'm sure that was fun, and I respect them asking you to do it, and I'm sh- you know I'm sure you did a great job, and it was valuable to you. I can't stand the ESPN broadcast of the spring game every year where there are uh, uh, media refs because they spend yeah, the and that's what they did. They did talking that, yeah. about the refs and and yeah, I know I know. And, you know, miking down to the the ESPN personalities that are on the field. It's like just talk about the players. That's why we're here. Not the, I know, not the and that's rap. exactly what happened. I haven't seen the game. I, I you know, obviously I was there, but I didn't see it. But that they wired up all those guys. It was McDonough, Dvorak, Molly McGrath, Todd uh, Blackledge. I'm trying to think who else, and and they were all good guys. Um, but they were all of them were wired. Yeah, with uh, headsets and mics, and so that uh, great for them. That's good. He is Dennis Dodd. He is totally in the bag for the black team and against the red team in the Georgia spring game. He threw (laughs) the game to help them cover the spread. I'm out it. (laughs) You can follow him on Twitter at Dennis Dodd CBS. Dennis, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys.